discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., born March 8, 1841, died March 6, 1935, is most recognized for having served as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States from 1902 to 1932. In addition to being, according to Wikipedia, quote, one of the most widely cited U.S. Supreme Court justices and most influential American common law judges in history, end quote, he was also a Civil War veteran. An officer in the famed 20th Massachusetts, the quote-unquote Harvard Regiment, Holmes was allegedly the man who said to Abraham Lincoln at Fort Stevens, quote, get down, you damn fool, end quote. Oh, and in case you haven't guessed it by now, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. will be my guest, posthumously, of course, for this very special Memorial Day edition of Open Mic Night. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. On May 30th, 1884, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. delivered the following remarks to the John Sedgwick Post No. 4 Grand Army of the Republic chapter. The speech, given in honor of the fallen of America's most devastating conflict, was delivered two decades before his appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court and is titled, In Our Youth, Our Hearts Were Touched with Fire, which is also Holmes' most famous quote. According to Dan Vermeer, writing in a blog post for the Antietam Journal, quote, The entire address is noteworthy for Holmes' moving eloquence and his ability to powerfully convey the meaning behind Memorial Day. Holmes himself was a seasoned veteran of the Civil War, having been wounded in several engagements, including the Battle of Antietam. On the morning of September 17, 1862, Holmes' regiment, the 20th Massachusetts, was engaged in a fierce firefight in the West Woods amidst the melee and confusion of battle that morning. With Confederates sweeping up the Federal flank, Holmes was wounded in the neck. His story of suffering and survival is a harrowing one, and perhaps best told in a separate blog post. For today, Holmes' address in 1884 describing the purpose behind Memorial Day will suffice, showing how one battle-scarred veteran of the war felt about remembering those who did not survive some of the worst days in the history of this nation. End quote. Antietamjournal.blogspot.com. 
And now, ladies and gentlemen, I present Our Hearts Were Touched With Fire, as it was originally orated by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. on Memorial Day, May 30th, 1884, with some very minor omissions due to a lack of context. More specifically, I omitted the parts where Holmes would occasionally make reference to a painting that was present at the time of the speech. For full transparency and convenience, the missing parts are bookended by one of my standard transition sound effects. And if you are curious to see what didn't make the cut, and or you just want to read along, a link to the full transcript of the address will be included with this episode's show notes. Not long ago, I heard a young man ask why people still kept up Memorial Day, and it set me thinking of the answer. Not the answer that you and I should give to each other, not the expression of those feelings that, so long as you live, will make this day sacred to memories of love and grief and heroic youth, but an answer which should command the assent of those who do not share our memories, and in which we of the North and our brethren of the South could join in perfect accord. So far as this last is concerned, to be sure, there is no trouble. The soldiers who were doing their best to kill one another felt less of personal hostility, I am very certain, than some who were not imperiled by their mutual endeavors. I have heard more than one of those who had been gallant and distinguished officers on the Confederate side say that they had had no such feeling. I know that I and those whom I knew best had not. We believed that it was most desirable that the North should win. We believed in the principle that the Union is indissoluble. We, or many of us at least, also believed that the conflict was inevitable, and that slavery had lasted long enough. But we equally believed that those who stood against us held just as sacred conviction that were the opposite of ours, and we respected them as every man with a heart must respect those who give all for their belief. The experience of battle soon taught its lesson even to those who came into the field more bitterly disposed. You could not stand up day after day in those indecisive contests where overwhelming victory was impossible because neither side would run as they ought when beaten, without getting at least something of the same brotherhood for the enemy that the North Pole of a magnet has for the South, each working in an opposite sense to the other, but each unable to get along without the other. As it was then, it is now. The soldiers of the war need no explanations. They can join in commemorating a soldier's death with feelings not different in kind, whether he fell toward them or by their side. But Memorial Day may and ought to have a meaning also for those who do not share our memories. When men have instinctively agreed to celebrate an anniversary, it will be found that there is some thought of feeling behind it, which is too large to be dependent upon associations alone. The 4th of July, for instance, has still its serious aspect, although we no longer should think of rejoicing like children that we have escaped from an outgrown control, although we have achieved not only our national but our moral independence, and know it far too profoundly to make a talk about it, and although an Englishman can join in the celebration without a scruple. For, stripped of the temporary associations which gives rise to it, it is now the moment when by common consent we pause to become conscious of our national life and to rejoice in it, to recall what our country 
has done for each of us, and to ask ourselves what we can do for the country in return. So, to the indifferent inquirer who asks why Memorial Day is still kept up we may answer, it celebrates and solemnly reaffirms from year to year a national act of enthusiasm and faith. It embodies in the most impressive form our belief that to act with enthusiasm and faith is the condition of acting greatly. To fight out a war, you must believe something and want something with all your might. So must you do to carry anything else to an end worth reaching. More than that, you must be willing to commit yourself to a course, perhaps a long and hard one, without being able to foresee exactly where you will come out. All that is required of you is that you should go some whither as hard as ever you can. The rest belongs to fate. One may fall at the beginning of the charge or at the top of the earthworks, but in no other way can he reach the rewards of victory. When it was felt so deeply as it was on both sides that a man ought to take part in the war unless some conscientious scruple or strong practical reason made it impossible, was that feeling simply the requirement of a local majority that their neighbors should agree with them? I think not. I think the feeling was right, in the South as in the North. I think that, as life is action and passion, it is required of a man that he should share the passion and action of his time at peril, of being judged not to have lived. If this be so, the use of this day is obvious. It is true that I cannot argue a man into a desire. If he says to me, why should I seek to know the secrets of philosophy? Why seek to decipher the hidden law laws of creation that are graven upon the tablets of the rocks, or to unravel the history of civilization that is woven in the tissue of our jurisprudence, or to do any great work, either of speculation or of practical affairs, I cannot answer him, or at least my answer is as little worth making for any effect it will have upon his wishes if he asked why I should eat this or drink that. You must begin by wanting to. But although desire cannot be imparted by argument, it can be by contagion. Feeling begets feeling feeling, and great feeling begets great feeling. We can hardly share the emotions that make this day to us the most sacred day of the year, and embody them in ceremonial pomp without in some degree imparting them to those who came after us. I believe from the bottom of my heart that our memorial halls and statues and tablets, the tattered flags of our regiments gathered in the state houses, are worth more to our young men by way of chastening and inspiration than the monuments of another hundred years of peaceful life life could be. But even if I am wrong, even if those who come after us are to forget all that we hold dear, and the future is to teach and kindle its children in ways as yet unrevealed, it is enough for us that this day is dear and sacred. But as surely as this day comes round, we are in the presence of the dead. For one hour, twice a year at least, at the regimental dinner, where the ghosts sit at table more numerous than the living, and on this day, when we decorate their graves, the dead come back and live with us. I see them now, more than I can number, as once I saw them on this earth. I see a fair-haired lad, a lieutenant, and a captain on whom life had begun somewhat to tell, but still young, sitting by the long mess table in camp before the regiment left the state, and wondering how many of those who gathered in our tent could hope to see the end of what was then beginning, for neither of them was that destiny reserved. I remember, as I awoke from my first long stupor in the hospital after the Battle of Ball's Bluff, I heard the doctor say he was a beautiful boy, and I knew that one of those two speakers was no more. The other, after passing through all the previous battles, went into Fredericksburg with a strange premonition of the end, and there he met his fate. I see another youthful lieutenant, as I saw him in the seven days, when I looked down the line at 
Glendale. The officers were at the head of their companies. The advance was beginning. We caught each other's eye and saluted. When next I looked, he was gone. I see the brother of the last, the flame of genius and daring on his face, as he rode before us into the wood of Antietam, out of which came only dead and deadly wounded men. So, a little later, he rode to his death at the head of his cavalry in the valley. But the men, not less, perhaps even more, characteristic of New England, were the Puritans of our day. For the Puritan still lives in New England, thank God, and will live there as long as New England lives and keeps her old renown. New England is not dead yet. She is still mother of a race of conquerors, stern men, little given to the expression of their feelings, sometimes careless of their graces, but fertile, tenacious, and knowing only duty. Each of you, as I do, thinks of a hundred such that he has known. I see one, grandson of a hard rider of the revolution and bearer of his historic name, who was with us at Fair Oaks, and afterwards for five days and nights in front of the enemy, the only sleep that he would take was what he could snatch sitting erect in his uniform and resting his back against a hut. He fell at Gettysburg. His brother, a surgeon, who rode, as our surgeons so often did, wherever the troops would go, I saw kneeling in ministration to a wounded man just in rear of our line at Antietam, his horse's bridle round his arm. The next moment, his ministrations were ended. His senior associate survived all the wounds and perils of the war, but not yet through with duty as he understood it, fell in helping the helpless poor who were dying of cholera in a western city. I see another quiet figure of virtuous life and quiet ways, not much heard of until our left was churned at Petersburg. He was in command of the regiment as he saw our comrades driven in. He threw back our left wing, and the advancing tide of defeat was shattered against his iron wall. He saved an army corps from disaster, and then a round shot, and did all for him. There is one who on this day is always present on my mind. He entered the army at nineteen, a second lieutenant. In the wilderness, already at the head of his regiment, he fell, using the moment that was left him of life to give all of his little fortune to his soldiers. I saw him in camp on the march, in action. I crossed debatable land with him when we were rejoining the army together. I observed him in every kind of duty, and never in all the time I knew him did I see him fail to choose that alternative of conduct which was most disagreeable to himself. He was indeed a Puritan in all his virtues, without the Puritan austerity. For when duty was at an end, he who had been the master and leader became the chosen companion in every pleasure that a man might honestly enjoy. His few surviving companions will never forget the awful spectacle of his advance alone with his company in the streets of Fredericksburg. In less than 60 seconds, he would become the focus of a hidden and annihilating fire from a semicircle of houses. His first platoon had vanished under it in an instant, ten men falling dead by his side. He had quietly churned back to where the other half of his company was waiting, had given the order, second platoon forward, and was again moving on, in obedience to superior command, to certain and useless death, when the order he was obeying was countermanded. The end was distant only a few seconds, but if you had seen him with his indifference different carriage and sword swinging from his finger like a cane, you would never have suspected that he was doing more than conducting a company drill on the camp parade ground. He was little more than a boy, but the grizzled corps commanders knew and admired him, and for us who not only admired but loved, his death seemed to end a portion of our life also. There is one grave and commanding presence that you all would recognize, for his life has become a part of our common history. Who does not remember the leader of the assault of the mine at Petersburg, the solitary horseman in front of Port Hudson, whom a foeman worthy of him bade his soldiers
soldiers spare, from love and admiration of such gallant bearing, who does not still hear the echo of those eloquent lips after the war, teaching reconciliation and peace? I may not do more than allude to his death, fit ending of his life. All that the world has a right to know has been told by a beloved friend in a book, wherein friendship has found no need to exaggerate facts that speak for themselves. I knew him, and I may even say I knew him well. Yet, until that book appeared, I had not known the governing motive of his soul. I had admired him as a hero. When I read, I learned to revere him as a saint. His strength was not in honor alone, but in religion. And those who do not share his creed must see that it was on the wings of religious faith that he mounted above even valiant deeds into an empyrean of ideal life. I have spoken of some of the men who are near to me, along others very near and dear, not because their lives have become historic, but because their lives are the type of what every soldier has known and seen in his own company. In the great democracy of self-devotion, private and general stand side by side. Unmarshaled, save by their own deeds, the army of the dead sweep before us, wearing their wounds like stars. It is not because the men I have mentioned were my friends that I have spoken of them, but, I repeat, because they are types. I speak of those whom I have seen, but you all have known such. You too remember. It is not of the dead alone that we think on this day. There are those still living whose sex forbade them to offer their lives, but who gave instead their happiness. Which of us has not been lifted above himself by the sight of one of those lovely, lonely women around whom the wand of sorrow has traced its excluding circle, set apart even when surrounded by loving friends who would fain bring back joy to their lives? I think of one whom the poor of a great city know as their benefit benefactress and friend. I think of one who has lived not less greatly in the midst of her children, to whom she has taught such lessons as may not be heard elsewhere from mortal lips. The story of these and her sisters we must pass in reverent silence. All that may be said has been said by one of their own sex. Quote, but when the days of golden dreams had perished, and even despair was powerless to destroy, then did I learn how existence could be cherished, strengthened, and fed without the aid of joy. Then did I check the tears of useless passion, weaned my young soul from yearning after thine, sternly denied its burning wish to hasten, down to that tomb already more than mine." End quote. Comrades, some of the associations of this day are not only triumphant but joyful. Not all of those with whom we once stood shoulder to shoulder, not all of those whom we once loved and revered, are gone. On this day we still meet our companions in the freezing winter and in those dreadful summer marches where every faculty of the soul seemed to depart one after another, leaving only a dumb animal power to set the teeth and to persist, a blind belief that somewhere, and at last, there was bread and water. On this day, at least, we still meet and rejoice in the closest tie which is possible between men, a tie which suffering has made indissoluble for better, for worse. When we meet thus, when we do honor to the dead, in terms that must sometimes embrace the living, we do not deceive ourselves. We attribute no special merit to a man for having served when all were serving. We know that if the armies of our war did anything worth remembering, 
The credit belongs not mainly to the individuals who did it, but to average human nature. We also know very well that we cannot live in associations with the past alone, and we admit that if we would be worthy of the past, we must find new fields for action or thought, and make for ourselves new careers. But nevertheless, the generation that carried on the war has been set apart by its experience. Through our great good fortune, in our youth our hearts were touched with fire. It was given to us to learn at the outset that life is a profound and passionate thing. While we are permitted to scorn nothing but indifference, and do not pretend to undervalue the worldly rewards of ambition, we have seen with our own eyes, beyond and above the gold fields, the snowy heights of honor, and it is for us to bear the report to those who come after us. But above all, we have learned that whether a man accepts from fortune her spade, and will look downward and dig, or from aspiration her axe and cord, and will scale the ice, the one and only success which is his to command, is to bring to his work a mighty heart. Such hearts, ah me, how many, were stilled twenty years ago, and to us who remain behind is left this day of memories. Every year, in the full tide of spring, at the height of the symphony of flowers and love and life, there comes a pause, and through the silence we hear the lonely pipe of death. Year after year, lovers, wandering under the apple trees and through the clover and deep grass, are surprised with sudden tears as they see black-veiled figures stealing through the morning to a soldier's grave. Year after year, the comrades of the dead follow, with public honor, procession, and commemorative flags and funeral march. Honor and grief from us who stand almost alone and have seen the best and noblest of our generation pass away. But grief is not the end of all. I seem to hear the funeral march become a pion. I see beyond the forest the moving banners of a hidden column. Our dead brothers still live for us and bid us think of life, not death, of life to which in their youth they lent the passion and joy of the spring. As I listen, the great chorus of life and joy begins again, and amid the awful orchestra of seen and unseen powers and destinies of good and evil, our trumpets sound once more a note of daring, hope, and will. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Memorial Day, May 30th, 2022. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.